following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Uh, we are continuing our introduction to the apostles here this week, uh, taking the last couple of weeks to try to get a general understanding of them, sort of a high-level understanding who these guys are, when they were called, why they were called, what exactly they were called to. So that's kind of been the last couple of weeks. If you've missed that, uh, I'd encourage you to go back online and listen to it as we think these guys are important enough to give some time to. And now today we're going to kind of drill down and, and look in a little more detail at, at a couple of them and, and do that over the next couple of weeks, but I'll talk about that here in a moment. But you're in Mark chapter 3. I want to read verses 13 to 19, and then, as we always do, go to the Lord in prayer, asking his blessing on our time together in his word. So please look at Mark Chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Pray. Father, I pray again today that you will meet with us and speak to us. Lord, the, the temptation or the danger perhaps and the kind of study we're doing right now here in Mark 3 is that we forget that the emphasis is you. We somehow take it and place it on these 12 men that you call to be your apostles. And while they are certainly significant, they're the foundation of the church. They would not be that apart from you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you will protect our hearts and minds as we study today. Uh, protect our hearts and minds over the next few weeks, couple weeks here as we talk about these things. Lord, we want to... We want to walk away with a better understanding of how you were working and in whom you were working here in these stories, but not losing sight of you. And so, God, please protect us from that. Please meet with us this morning. May your spirit open our minds, give me clarity to speak, so that as we walk away, the glory and the praise goes to you and what you have done, both in these men's lives and in us here. That's what our focus and emphasis needs to be on. So we thank you for this time together and ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are a lot of things in life I have, uh, I've never done that I've always wanted to do. I've, I've always wanted to go out west and see the Grand Canyon and see the Redwood Forest, right, and the Gulf Stream waters, because this land was made for you and me. Uh, as I was writing that even, I wasn't thinking about the song, and then later I was going over and I'm realizing, wait a minute, that's the lyrics of of the song, but I would love to do that. I mean, I've never been out that uh, way. I've never seen any of those things except on like PBS and, and to be able to see that would be really, really cool. Uh, I've never watched the Dick Van Dyke show. I put that down because Jamie keeps pressuring me to watch the Dick Van Dyke show because she loved it and I've just never been interested. Sorry. Uh, I've never taken a tour of the White House. I've always really wanted to do that. I've been to Washington several times now and I've taken tours of just about every other thing you can take a tour of in Washington, but that was one that uh, somehow along the way we've missed or not been able to accomplish. Uh, this is going to shock some of you. I have never been on Facebook, ever. 
nor do I have any desire ever to be on it. There was a time, actually, when Twitter first came out that Frank convinced me to get on Twitter with him um, because he couldn't quite understand the purpose of Twitter. He's like, is this for, like, the hyper-narcissistic? And why would anyone want to know what you do every moment of the day? And so we did it, and we followed each other. And funny enough, we ended up with, like, 30 followers, and we didn't even know 29 of the 30 people. And so we got off of it. That's the only time I've ever been on anything social media-like, and that was just as a joke. I've never been on Facebook. Uh, I've never been to Europe. I'd love to go to Europe. I'd love to do a Reformation tour. I've always thought that would be really fun, like to go to Italy, go to Germany, Switzerland, England, and just see these places that I've read about in church history. I think that would be a lot of fun someday. Um, This is a big one right here. I have never ordered or eaten a colonial kitchen sink. And since you don't know what that is, because you're not, uh, have no connection to the Chicago area, Colonial is the name of a restaurant in the suburbs of Chicago that is probably closest to a Friendly's, if I had to make a connection. It's kind of like a family restaurant, and it's got all the normal sort of Friendly's-like food, but then also has a main uh, ice cream section of the restaurant. And you can order this thing called a kitchen sink, and I'm going to show you a picture of it. What do you mean, Ooh. So it's, it's, it's this thing, it comes on like a wooden base, and they've taken pipes, and they've put them together, so it makes like a, the traps, and makes this U-shape, and on top is a kitchen sink, and they fill this thing with six scoops of ice cream, and there's a fine line between scoop and pint in their mind, okay? Six scoops of ice cream, there's two bananas, two whole bananas, every topping they have, and then covered in whipped cream, and if you get this, you get a bumper sticker, that says, I ate a colonial kitchen sink. And you would be shocked, shocked, I say, how many of those bumper stickers you see on cars around the Chicago area. And we've gone there a number of times, and we've watched people get kitchen sinks. And the kids, of course, desperately want a kitchen sink. We so far said no, but one day we're going to say yes, and I'll mark that one off the bucket list, all right? So there's a few, uh, a few things that I have never done that I've always wanted to do, but and, and, and I'm thinking of that because as we've come through Mark here, there's something here in Mark that I've always wanted to do that I've never done that I have made the decision that we're finally going to do it. I have never studied the 12 apostles individually, okay? Never studied them as men, trying to understand who they are, uh, what they're like, what we know about them, don't know about them, what that helps us understand both about them and the Gospels as well as about them and the rest of the books of the New Testament as we read about them. I've never done this kind of study. And so a few weeks ago, Jordan and I were talking about this and just addressing the fact that these guys are so important, but we know so little about them. Wouldn't it be helpful to do this? And the reason I'm putting this out there in case this is not helpful, then Jordan shares the blame with me, by the way. Uh, we, we thought maybe it would be good to, to just stop and consider who these guys are individually in a little more detail than we normally would. And if you want, you could call uh, what I'm going to be doing today and probably next week and the week after. This is not going to be 12 messages. You're welcome. Um, you, can, you can call what I'm doing maybe a biographical sermon or a character study if you like, but I'm going to be honest with you up front. There's a, a big part of me that doesn't really like either of those terms, um, for what we're going to do. And here's the reason why. In the past, as I have either listened to those kinds of sermons or I have read people who are trying to do that same kind of thing, 
it seems to me that quite often you, you fall into one of a couple of, a, couple of dangers along the way that, that are very unhelpful for us as believers trying to understand the scriptures. I think one of the places people go wrong is that often uh, preachers or, or authors have been uh, filling out more of the details about these men with speculation than scripture. You, you understand what I mean by that? I mean, you'll, you'll hear someone preach a sermon on King David. And they'll say, well, you know the story of David and Bathsheba. Well, here was David in his palace alone, and he was lonely. And he goes up on the roof, and he sees Bathsheba. And they begin to fill out certain little details of the story that aren't actually stated in the text. And I'm like, well, how do you know he was lonely? I mean, clearly he was something. But how do you know it was lonely that he was that, that day? And, and they never stop to clarify for us as students and as listeners and as readers that this is my speculation about it. They just tend to throw it out as, as being gospel truth when in fact it has absolutely no basis in the text. Jamie ha- has talked about this, oh my goodness, I couldn't even begin to number the times, in relation to women's books. Okay, Some of you are already like, yeah, I know where this is going. Sh- she'll be reading a book and it's like the heart of true contentment because every lady's book starts with the heart of something. And it's always either pink or yellow, and there's either a flower or a child, or a flower and a child. That's the, that's the order of the, of the way publishers work this out. And it's, you know, it's talking about Esther. It'll pick some random Bible character and be like, Esther struggled with contentment. As Esther was growing up, she didn't have this and this and this, and out of that she learned that and that and that. And Jamie will come in the room and be like, is any of that in the Bible anywhere? Because she knows it's not, but she's wanting to confirm. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. And people do this. They, they do this all the time, just taking details of, of speculations, things they want to fill out in people's lives about what they read in Scripture, and they just assume it and teach it, and that's not helpful, okay? I don't really have an issue so much with you speculating about things. I think it's natural to some extent to, to wonder what is the motivation behind certain uh, actions, decisions, words, etc., that you read in the scriptures and the stories that are going on. But remember that your speculations are like here, and God's word is up here, and, and they can't they can't intertwine. Okay, keep that always clear in your mind. And, and so we want to avoid that, even in what we're going to do here today. Another thing I have often seen that I think goes wrong along these kinds of messages, kinds of teaching, is that often the people being studied. Ha- studied have been reduced to to really nothing more than a caricature or a moral vignette or a life lesson that we can learn something from. And so uh, first example popped in my mind as I was studying this week for this one was Thomas, right? Thomas the Apostle. What do do we call him? Why do you call him that? Because one time, one time, he didn't believe something when he first heard it. He had watched his leader be executed and put in a grave. And then everyone comes around and says, well, he's alive. And he's like, I don't know about that. And we all are like, he's a doubter. I mean, have you thought about how stupid that is? Chris, can I use you as an example for a minute? Not about doubting. I don't know if you know where that's going for a second. But, I mean, imagine for a moment if your entire life was reduced to one instance. I know Chris likes to hunt. That's why he came to mind. Imagine Chris is out in the woods and he's hunting and not paying attention, not being careful, not aware of what's going on. He runs into a skunk and he gets sprayed. And the person he's hunting with writes this down. 
And 2,000 years pass, and our culture, our society is completely lost. And someday an archaeologist finds a story of Chris being sprayed by a skunk, and forever we hear about stinky Chris. Because of one instant, like, that, I'm just using that as an illustration of why this makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense that we would drop these characters down to mere caricatures of who they really were. Thomas was much more than that one scene. I don't know what he was exactly, because we're just not given the details, but I know he's more than just a doubter, and we should probably stop calling him that, because it's not really fair to him. So they're reduced to caricatures, or, or they're reduced to just being about life lessons. So you take Peter, okay? Peter's life teaches us what it means to be a true godly leader. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in sermons and books, etc. I'm reading... Um, I've been reading MacArthur's uh, 12 Ordinary Men. I keep wanting to say 12 Angry Men, but that's a movie with Peter Fonda. I'm not, that's not a joke either. I keep doing that. Jamie's like, what are you doing? I'm reading 12 Angry Men. No, 12 Ordinary Men. Um, MacArthur, I love MacArthur. MacArthur was, was one of those people, John MacArthur was one of those people that God used in my life right after I became a believer. He was like my first Bible teacher. Because all I had was the radio. And he was on our Christian radio station, and he would be on there, him and a bunch of other guys who... I benefited from and grew from tremendously, and I listened to him and learned. And to this day, I have a, I have a, a special place in my heart for MacArthur. So as I'm reading him, I, I'm definitely on his side. I, I love him. But even as he's writing up about Peter in this book, he kind of does the same thing. He, he, at the end of the book, or end of this chapter on Peter, turns it to being about, now what can you learn about leadership? Here's the, the character qualities of a leader and the lessons that a leader has to learn and the, the basic DNA that's in a leader. And I'm not saying that he's wrong about any of those things. But I'm just thinking that Peter's life was about more than learning about leadership. That it's not right to reduce him down to like a moral vignette or life lesson regarding the issue of biblical leadership, even though we might be able to learn components of that from him. And, and all that to say, I've benefited greatly from, from MacArthur's book, and there will be parts that I will use totally blatantly in in my sermons in my in my study here and I, I don't I don't have an issue with that. I just I just think these are things that if I could and I if I can as I'm going through this over the next couple weeks, things I want to avoid. As much as I can, and I won't do it perfectly, but but as much as I can, I want to try to avoid speculating about these people. I want to actually look at what we see clearly in the text, make that very plain to us. I'll try to make it clear when I'm telling you things that we think are true, but maybe aren't exactly listed verbatim in the text. I'll, I'm going to try my best to do that. And I want us to walk away not having learned about these guys. There's not a life lesson in Peter. There's a theological lesson in Peter, but it's going to be the same theological lesson in Andrew and James and John and Thomas and you and me and everyone else. And that's that we have an amazing Savior who can take anybody and turn them into something that the world can't possibly understand. That's the same theological lesson that will come up each and every time, regardless of who we're talking about. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take this week, next week, and I think the week after, three Sundays, and just see what we know about these guys. List it out. Talk it through as simply as we can, um, and hopefully in doing so, we will give the praise and glory to Jesus for what he has done in taking these men and using them to become the foundation of the church. And then in turn, what he can do with us as he builds his church today. So here we're going to do, we're going to start with Simon and Andrew today.
and then we'll uh, work in some more next week. So let's talk about Simon and Andrew specifically. Let me give you a little bit of background information on these two guys. You know a little bit, but we didn't cover everything in those last two weeks, so we're going to go into more detail today. But I'll give you some information on both of these guys because they're brothers. Their father's name is John, Jonah or Jonas. And you see that, for example, here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, where right after Peter has made this great confession of of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, he says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. The word bar here means son of, okay? So Simon, son of Jonah. Elsewhere, he's called Simon, son of John. I think I have that in the slide coming up later on. We know nothing else about his family, nothing else about his mother, nothing about what his parents did, if he has any brothers or sisters outside of, of Andrew, nothing else about them, but, but both Simon and Andrew or Simon and Andrew bar Jonah. That's who they are. We know that both of them are from Bethsaida because in John chapter 1, verse 44, as John is recounting the first meeting between some of the men who will become apostles in Jesus, he says there that Philip meets Jesus and Philip is from Bethsaida and that happens also to be the city of Andrew and Peter. And if you don't know where Bethsaida is, we'll go back to our map. Bethsaida is a town that we believe is somewhere on the east side of the Jordan River, there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. I say believe because we haven't found the ruins, but based on other things that are written about the town, this is where it's generally placed. And so they're originally from that particular city, but at some point they move over to Capernaum. And that's where we meet them. When they're in Capernaum, it's, it's, as you already know, it's a commercial hub there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's on this east-west trading route that runs between two different Roman districts, Roman provinces. And it really is a chief town there in northern Galilee. There's a garrison of Roman troops there, and there's going to be a centurion there whom Jesus is going to interact with later on. There's a, a tax collecting station there, right? Which is why Levi is here as well. And so when Jesus runs into Levi there on the streets of Capernaum, it's, that's why. It's because it's this, main, it's this main hub. It's this main district. It's a trade town. It's a fishing town. It's a commercial hub for that northern region. And that's exactly what these two brothers are doing here. They have moved here, and they have some kind of a fishing business. They're fishermen, probably working on their own by and large, but partnered with James and John, uh, we're told. And you see that here in Mark. We already looked at it. They're out. They're all in the Sea of Galilee, and they're casting a net into the sea because they're fishermen, which is funny that he clarifies that, isn't it? Like, why else would you cast a net into a sea? But just in case you didn't know, he's doing it because they're, they're fishermen, and, and that's just what fishermen do. And I thought this was interesting. I was reading a little bit about them being fishermen, which is a very narrow slice of their life. But uh, there are three kinds of fish that we archaeologists and, and biblical scholars believe were primary crops in those day for for fishermen the small fish were the sardines when when jesus is feeding the five thousand, and they say we've got a boy here he's got two small fish a lot of people think that's probably a sardine so if you're into sardines and if you're not i mean it's that's why they were fishing they're plentiful in that area the second fish was called a barbel b-a-r or barbell looks like kind of barbell it was a larger fish, and this might be the kind that, that Peter caught when he found the coin in the fish's mouth. Remember when Jesus said, hey, we've got to pay taxes. Go throw a, a hook in the, ocean, in the uh, sea. First fish that you catch, open its mouth. You're going to find a coin. Go pay the taxes for us. Probably that fish, about the only one large enough for that. And the third one is called a mushed, M-U-S-H-T. 
And it's the most common type of commercial fish in the Sea of Galilee. And to this day, it is known as St. Peter's fish. An interesting note. That's what they're doing there. They're fishermen catching all kinds of fish. We know they owned a house together in Capernaum, right? Simon and Andrew. We see that Mark 1 where it mentions Jesus going into the house of Simon and Andrew. And if you're confused as to why they had a house together, remember that in that day, it wasn't like here. It's not our culture. You live with your family. And you all live together in one compound, one home, one, one thing, okay? So that's what you see here. Simon and Andrew together live in a house there in Capernaum. And I've shown you uh, pictures of this before, but if you weren't here, I'll show again. These are excavations from Capernaum, and you see this ruin with the octagon around it. And remember, the octagon is a church that was built, oh, I forgot, I forgot to relook it up. Is it third century, fourth century? over the site of what was Simon's house, Simon and Andrew's house, what's believed to be their house, and it seems to be correct. And if you can't quite see the original, I put this there that last time so you could see it. This is the original structure that was on the site. So it's a compound. It's got walls, and there's different rooms, different areas where the people would live, livestock would be, supplies, et cetera, et cetera. This is somewhere we think, or we think this is where they lived, and this is where Jesus is going to go into there in Capernaum, and guess what? That's pretty much it. That's pretty much all we know about these two guys together as as brothers in terms of putting their life back together to fill out a picture of what is going on. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I study the scriptures, like that kind of, of, of study sort of excites me because it helps me to really picture it. It helps me to really see what's What's going on is Jesus is walking down roads and he's walking into homes and he's interacting with people in different places. To, to be able to understand little concepts like that, they really bring the story to life. I've heard it illustrated like this, that it's kind of the difference between watching television in color and black and white. In both cases, you see the same thing. There's a lot more detail, though, when it's in color. And so some of these things add some color to the, to the story that really help us. So that's what we know about the two of them together. Let's talk about them individually now. Let's talk about Simon for a moment. Because there is at least one more thing we know specifically about him, and that's that he is the only apostle that we're aware of that was married. Okay? That, that was there in Mark chapter 1. We saw that before in Mark 1, 29 and 30. Same story. Jesus is walking into his house, and as soon as he comes into the house, he is confronted with the fact that Simon's mother-in-law is sick because even, even mom is in the house, right? Everyone. Matt, aren't you glad you don't live, you don't, didn't live then? Take that where you want, okay? <laughs> Jamie's not here, so I could say that. So... So mother-in-law is sick here, and, and later even Paul's going to mention it in 1 Corinthians 9 that he took his wife with him in some of his ministry journeys. He's the only one that we know is married. Others may have been. We don't know if they had children or any of those other ideas, but we know that much about Simon. Simon, We know that he was renamed at some point, right? It's all that here, but you see the first time this happens in John chapter 1 where he meets Jesus, and Jesus says to him, okay, you're Simon, son of John? Well, not anymore. From now on, I'm going to call you Cephas, which means Peter. And what does Cephas or Peter mean? Rock. Thank you. Okay, rock or stone. He he takes him and he gives him a new name so that, uh, well, I won't talk about why, but he gives him a new name that no longer will he be called just Simon. He's now going to be called Cephas or Peter, Cephas being Aramaic, Peter being Greek. 
Simon is his given name, but Cephas or Peter is the name given to him by Christ. And as we read the accounts of him in the Gospels, he's going to go by one of four variations of that. Either they'll call him Simon, or they'll call him Peter, or they'll call him Simon Peter, or they'll call him Cephas. All the same person. Confusing? Got to keep up with it, all right? All four are the same thing. And what's interesting is you read through the Gospels, there seems to be two main contexts in which he's referred to as Simon. Context number one is whenever his name is used in a, 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 like a, a secular or public kind of way. So it's Simon and Andrew's house. It's Simon's boat. It's, if, you're, if his name is being used in any reference to how he would have been known commonly, it's almost always Simon, if not always Simon. The other time he's called Simon is whenever he acts like his old self, all right? So, so for example, in Mark chapter 14, as Jesus is in the garden getting ready to be arrested, he asks Peter, James, and John to come with him and to watch, right? You know that scene. And, of course, what do they do? They fall asleep. And it's interesting there in Mark 14 how Mark writes this. He says that Jesus came to Peter and said, Simon, why are you sleeping? Mark is calling him Peter, but he's quoting Jesus as calling him Simon. Anytime Simon doesn't live up to whatever expectation Christ had for him or others had for him, it seems that he is more often called Simon than Peter. Just an interesting observation. The only person who's a little different with that is John a lifelong friend, someone he was in a fishing business with or partnered with, he can't seem to figure out what to call him. He calls him Simon Peter more than anyone else. So he kind of goes both ways there. There's no question, though, as we think about this guy, Simon, Peter, Cephas, that he is clearly the leader or the spokesman of the 12. And let let me just clarify what I mean by this. When I call him the leader here, I'm not saying necessarily that Jesus made him the leader of the 12. But the way the scriptures present him, the way he acts, and I'll show you some of this in a moment, the way he he does things and he's put forward, it is clear that he is sort of the first among equals. For example, he's always listed first every time the apostles are mentioned, always. And I showed you some of that, how there's three groupings of four, and each grouping has a a, a sort of a leader who always leads out the grouping and the other people change. But the order of those groupings never changes. Peter's always listed first. There is no other name except for Jesus' name, of course, that's going to be used more in the Gospels. He's going to be the second most common character in the four Gospel accounts. There's no one else other than Jesus who speaks as often as Peter speaks, big surprise, right? Uh, MacArthur calls Peter, by the way, this made me laugh. He is the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. I like that, okay? No one else is going to speak as much as him, and often that's not going to be a good thing. There's no one that Jesus is going to speak to more than Peter. Peter's going to be the number one person Jesus talks to throughout the Gospels. Peter is going to ask more questions than anyone else in the Gospels. I mean, just think about some of the things that Peter asked him. Peter's the one who comes to Jesus after Jesus has been teaching and says, hey, can you explain that parable to me, to us? We don't understand. He's the one who steps forward and asks for the explanation. Uh, He's the one who comes to Jesus, Matthew 18, and says, how often do I have to forgive? What a great question to come to Jesus with, right? How often do I have to forgive people? Seven, is that good? Seven times? Uh, He's the one 
who comes to Jesus and says, hey, Lord, we've left everything behind for you. What rewards will we get? He's the one who comes to Jesus in Mark 11 and says, remember that fig tree you cursed? It died. What happened? Like, that's what he wants to know. He's the one who, after Jesus raises from the, rises from the dead, comes to him with questions there when Jesus appears to them in John 21, wanting to know what will happen in the future. This is, this is just Peter's M.O. He, he, he asks questions. He's always talking. He's up front. He seems clearly to be the boldest of the group by far. I mean, think about his confession in Matthew chapter 16, right? Who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you're Elijah. Others, that you're one of the prophets. Great, great. Who do you, 12, say that I am? And who's the one who makes the confession? It's Peter. Steps up, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And, and Jesus blesses him for that confession. He's bold in his confession. Think about his actions in the garden, right? We already kind of made fun of him a little bit here, but he, he's there. He brings a sword. Interesting enough in that. He brings a sword with him to the garden. And when a group of armed men come up, he's like, Zorro all of a sudden, and he alone is going to take on the whole group with no real thought to what was going to happen after that, right? But he's bold at least. I mean, he's the one who's, he's armed and he's ready to fight if need be to protect his master. He's the one who's going to stand up after Pentecost and preach in the very city that crucified the Lord. And, and we hear that, and we're so used to reading that scene there in Acts 2 and 3 that we're, we, we don't really get excited about that. But if, if your master, your Lord, had just been murdered in this town by this crowd, would you be all excited to jump up on a soapbox and start talking to him? I wouldn't. Here's Peter. He's bold in, in, in taking those actions. He, he always seems to be the first one to volunteer or get involved, right? Who walks on water? Peter. And again, we are so hypocritical. So hypocritical because we like, yeah, but he sank. He got out of the boat. (laughs) I mean, really, would you have gotten out of the boat? Yeah, I get that he didn't like maintain, but he got out. That's, that's, he, he, he sees Jesus. And again, just, I, I'm not trying to praise Peter. I'm just recognizing the scene. He sees a man, his master, walking to him on the water. And he's like, hey, Jesus, if it's you, command me to get out and come to you. They're like, this is what he wants. He wants to be told to get out of the boat. And Jesus is like, come on. And he goes. My mind is boggled by that kind of faith and that kind of boldness. He's one of the two disciples who goes to Jesus' trial. He just cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. He's now getting ready to walk into the courtyard of the very people who have orchestrated events so that Jesus can be put to death. And he's there in the courtyard. And again, what do we focus on? Well, he denied him. (laughs) But he's there. It's him and John. There. Together. In the courtyard. He doesn't abandon him. Everyone else runs away. Peter's still there. And so we, we pick on Peter. We, we make fun of him at points. And, and some of it certainly rightly deserved. Don't get me wrong. He's, he's not perfect. He, he fails. He makes mistakes. But you recognize in this individual that there's a reason why he's presented as the leader. 
as the, as the main spokesman for the group. And he's someone that Jesus pours himself into for those 18 months. And, and, and I just took three concepts, three ideas where you see something in Peter's life and then you look later at Peter's writings and, and, and it's interesting to compare them. But, but think about some things that Jesus taught him in those 18 months. Think about the issue of submission. Because when, when I mentioned earlier the tax, Peter comes to Jesus and says, hey, the Pharisees are coming saying, do we pay, does your master pay tax? And I don't really think we should. That's kind of the, the intent, it seems like, of his question. Like, we shouldn't be paying this. And, and how does Jesus respond? Well, we do what we're told to do. So go throw a, a hook in the water, whatever fish comes up, open its mouth. You're going to find a coin. It'll cover my tax and yours and go pay it for it. He, he's teaching Peter submission to authority there in that scene. And it's that same guy who puts the fish in the water who later writes this, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Well, there we go. Honor the emperor. I mean, this is, this is the same Peter, right? That the Lord's teaching the concept of submission to who later on is teaching us. Or, or think about the issue of restraint, right? The garden episode. Peter is clearly acting in an unrestrained way, in an unwise way. Jesus is going to rebuke him in the garden as he's healing Malchus's ear. Put your sword away. People who live by the sword die by the sword. Learn some restraint here. It's this guy who then writes in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, verses 21 to 23, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You don't, don't need to pull out your sword. You commit yourself to, to the God who judges righteously in those moments. It's the very restraint he doesn't exercise in the garden. Jesus teaches him humility. And, you know, that scene uh, before the denial, Jesus says, look, you're all going to flee. You're all going to flee. You're all going to run away. And what does Peter say? Never me. Even if all these other guys were to abandon you, I would never abandon you. I mean, it is very much about Peter and how much better Peter is than all the other 11. And, of course, Jesus says to him before the, the, the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, and he does. It's the same Peter so full of pride there in that scene, Matthew 26, that writes in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I mean, what a change, right? From what we see there in the gospel accounts to what we hear from Peter later on, it's clear that Jesus has come to bear on his life. It's not that Peter's made great changes personally, it's that Christ has made great changes in Peter, and it shows. So what happened to Peter? Well, we know he went on and he preached at Pentecost. 3,000 are saved. Throughout Acts, we see him healing people. He raises Dorcas from the dead. 
He brings the gospel to the Gentiles. He writes two epistles, First and Second Peter, and he's probably the source behind Mark's gospel here, I've told you in the past. He's not perfect, even after, after Pentecost. Paul talks about in Galatians 2 having to confront him because he was acting wrongly toward the Gentiles, and he responds. He, he does what he has to do, and we know that eventually he died. He's the only one, only one we were told would die as a martyr. John chapter 21, Jesus tells him, you, one day you're, you're going to have your hands bound and go a direction you don't want to go. You're going to die. And while we don't see in Scripture, so this is now tradition, okay? We don't see in Scripture how he died. Eusebius, an early church historian, cites Clement of Rome who says that before he was killed, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his wife. His wife. And as he watched her being led away, he called to her by name and said, Remember the Lord. Last words recorded of him, if those are in fact his, we don't know, okay, tradition. And when it was finally his turn, he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as the Savior. Again, tradition, we don't know. That's what we know about Simon and what we think about Simon there at the end. Uh, Real quick, because this won't take much time, let me also talk about Andrew, his brother, okay? Just to give you a little information, he's the least known of the main four We have no other information about him other than what I've already shared with you. He's much quieter than his brother. We know that. He's not, he's hardly ever, he hardly ever talks in the Gospels. Um, He's the first disciple, meaning here he is with John the Baptist. Him and John apparently are out in the wilderness with John the Baptist. And and Jesus comes along and John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And who's the one who first walks? It's it's Andrew. And and Jesus sees him follow me and says, what do you want? He's like, where are you staying, Rabbi? Come and see. And so now Andrew becomes the first person to, to follow Jesus. And, and, and what he does, what he's seen is doing throughout the few times he's mentioned here in the Gospels is he's introducing people to Jesus. And I, I'm not trying to make it up to make it sound good for preaching purposes. I mean, that's what he does. First thing he does is he goes and gets his brother. We found the Christ. Come and see. And so he does. He brings Peter. You see him another time. He's the one. Remember when Jesus feeds the, the 5,000 and he says to the disciples, you feed them. You, you give them something to eat. And they're all like, we don't have anything. You know who it is who brings the boy? It's, it's Andrew. John, John chapter 6, verse 9. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here. The five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? At least he knows, though. He's the one who actually takes an action where nobody else does. John chapter 12, uh, verses 20 to 22, tells us about some Greeks who came to Philip wanting to see Jesus. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They came to Philip. Why, we don't know, but they come to Philip. because He he was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they say to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And what does Philip do? Does he take them to Jesus? No, he goes and tells Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip together go and bring them to Jesus. I don't know why he comes to Andrew, but he does. It's one of the few times we see Andrew operating apart from, from, from his brother. And what happened to him? Again, we don't really know. Because after the Gospels end, his name is never mentioned again. Not in Acts, not in any of the epistles, not a word about him ever again. Again, Eusebius, the church historian, writes that after Pentecost, he went north, maybe as far as Russia. But that later he came back south and was crucified in Achaia, which is southern Greece. And one account says that he led the wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ, and that infuriated her husband. And so the governor is trying to get his wife to recant her belief in Jesus. And when she won't recant it, he crucifies Andrew as punishment, as retribution for that. 
And instead of nailing him to the cross, according to tradition, he had him tied to the cross to prolong his suffering and death. Supposedly, he hung, hung there two days, waiting to die. And as he hung there, again, tradition says he was exhorting those who passed by to turn to Christ. Th- this, is, this is Simon and Andrew. Okay? Real, real quick for Andrew, because there's just not much there. And if we're not going to speculate about these guys, and if we're not going to uh, just try to turn them into to some kind of like moral lesson that we can use, what do we, what do we walk away with after learning about them? Well, I'd give you two things. First, as we learn about these men, I think we should give glory to God for taking these two men who are completely insignificant on their own and, and using them to build the church. I mean, that, I, I'm not trying to like spiritualize it or, or turn it into something like forced. I just, when you read about them and you watch them operating within this, the, the text, you're, you're reminded again and again, there's nothing special about them at all. And yet, it's these two guys who are personally chosen by Jesus to build his church, to become its foundation. So I'm just reminded it's not them. It's Christ. And second then, I think we should remember that as Jesus builds his church, both historically and and here around us today, he is doing so using various people with various strengths, weaknesses, abilities, and talents, all for his glory. I mean, this is going to be a repeating theme over the next two Sundays, that you see very different kinds of people that Christ has drawn together, right, here in these 12. And it reminds me that I should probably be careful how I think about the church in my own heart and mind. So, for example, you know, I, I think this is just part of human nature. We like people like us, right? The closer you are to me and the way I think and live and operate and function, the more I'll like you. That's just human nature. And so it'd be easy for me in my community group to really want it to just be a whole bunch of, of Stacys. That would be horrible. But that's what it could be. You know, that could be my desire. I just want everyone to be like me. And if you're not like me, I don't know really what to do with you because you don't see things like I see them. You like function in a different way than me. And, and it has been very difficult, I think, for the church as a whole, not just our church, but the church as a whole, to remember that our mission isn't to turn people into images of us. That's not the mission of your community group, to turn the people in your neighborhood into images of you. It's not the mission of Cornerstone. It's not the the, the mission of, of the church in America to do that. The goal has always been to turn people into the image of Jesus. That's the goal. And the amazing thing is, is that Jesus can take people who are like, who are like Simon, people who are like Andrew and Thomas and all these other guys, very different perhaps in personalities and abilities, and he can use all of them. He can turn all of them into his image and then use all of them to turn people into his image as well. And so I'm challenging us this morning. Let's take a look at our hearts on this. What are you trying to do in your community group with your neighbors, with your friends? What do you value in in other people and what they bring to the table in terms of how they serve Jesus and are advancing his kingdom here around us? How do we view other churches even? Other churches in our area that that are like-minded in their, their dependency and belief in the gospel, but maybe just look a little different than us. I, how are we viewing these people? I, I'm, I'm admonishing us to be, as Paul admonished us, 
of the same mind, same heart, esteeming one another as being better than ourselves, so that in the end, right, as the world looks in on this thing we call the church, as they look in on this, they will see something that is completely unexplainable by any human measure. A group of diverse, humble, loving people who give glory to Jesus and depend on the gospel in everything they do. You pray for that with me this morning? You can bow your heads. Jesus, this is a probably very weak attempt at just trying to get our minds wrapped around who these guys are. The, the foundation of the church, so they're important and we want to understand them, but Lord, we just are very sensitive to the tendency of our hearts to wander off of you onto these men, and that certainly isn't the goal here this morning. And so I pray that even from what we've learned as we continue to read these names throughout the Gospels, that we won't caricaturize them down to certain character traits maybe we see or certain events that we want to define them by. Well, remember, there's much more about each of these men than what we've read, much, much more. And that in the end, with all their failures, faults, and successes, all of that is wrapped up in you and it's covered by your grace and your blood. And so as we operate and live and be the church today, we're covered by that same grace and by that same blood. And everything we do then, it is not to our benefit and is certainly, certainly not to make people look like us, but it's done to your glory and to make people look like you. Lord, reorient our hearts, please. They are so innately wicked that we don't even recognize what we're doing half the time and what we would like in our relationships half the time. And so God, we give our hearts to you. I thank you for these men. I thank you for what you've done in them, how you use them to be the foundation of what we see here in front of us today. We are the direct result of your working through them and many others to bring us to our day in faithfulness to Jesus Christ in the scripture. So God, we give the glory to you. We thank you for it all this morning in Jesus' name.